This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Science of Beauty, a podcast from Allure. I'm Diana Mazzone, Senior Beauty Editor. And I'm Jenny Bailly, Executive Beauty Director. On this podcast, we're diving deep into the science behind beauty and the products we're always talking about and using here at Allure. This season, we're focusing on hair. And a few weeks ago, we asked our friends and family if they'd be willing to share their stories about a really sensitive topic, hair loss and hair thinning. For so many of us, our hair is such an important part of our identities, right? And to lose it, it feels like this terrifying loss of not just these strands that you're seeing in the shower, but this loss of self and loss of control. And it's compounded by the fact that there's still so much stigma around losing your hair, especially for women. It's almost treated as some kind of failure, even though it's not even close to a rare occurrence. Yeah, it's so common. As we speak, there are about 30 million women in the U.S. who are dealing with hair loss and hair thinning as caused by genetics. And by the time we're 50, about half of us will have experienced it. There are so many different factors that can go into losing your hair. As you just mentioned, Diana, genetics is a big one, plus aging, hormonal changes, stress. And Diana, would you be surprised to learn that dermatologists have reported a surge in hair loss since the pandemic started? Unfortunately, that makes a ton of sense. So while we can't get rid of the causes of hair loss, we can help get rid of the stigma around it. It's time to eliminate this silence around women losing their hair. And why don't we start right now? This first story is from Valerie Adams Cruel, the mother of Allure's new editor-in-chief, Jessica Cruel. I remember my mom washing her hair in the kitchen sink, and she started apologizing to me for my hair genetics. You see, my dad is bald, and my mom has female pattern baldness. At this time, I had a full head of hair, and I swore that baldness would not be my fate. I was fighting an uphill battle. Christmas of 2016, I said, enough is enough, and I had my daughter, your editor-in-chief, shave my head. And that's when my wig journey began. Wearing a wig made me feel like I was in chains. I was always afraid that my wig would fall off at the most inopportune time, and it did. I would see more and more bald women, and I longed to be bold and confident like them. But something was always holding me back. Will I still be attractive? Am I too fat to be bald? What will my wig-wearing family think? Then something happened. My best friend for over 40 years bluntly asked, What is under that thing on your head? I reluctantly showed her my bald head, and she said with tears in her eyes, Valerie, you are so beautiful. Throw that wig in the trash. I cried like a baby. At that moment, I felt like my hair battle was over. 
and I had finally won. Now at age 57, I consider myself a bold boss and I have never felt more liberated. So I had a baby about a year and a half ago and experienced all of the wonderful, full, voluminous pregnancy hair that people always talk about. But then about six months postpartum, I was pulling clumps of hair out when I'd run my fingers through my hair. And our poor shower drain was just constantly a mass of hair. Because I spend my days basically looking at myself all day on video conference, it's also so obvious to me sometimes that I just have this receding hairline on one side. So on days when I have bigger presentations and I want to even it out a little bit, I'll take some brow pencil and fill it in. But I'm definitely hoping for the day one day when I don't need to fill in those little patchy spots anymore. And that last voice you heard was Michelle Lee, Allure's former editor-in-chief and former co-host of The Science of Beauty in our first season. It was very nice to hear her voice. And to round out our stories, we're hearing from Allure's beauty editor, Paige Stables. My hair started thinning around three months ago. This wasn't long after I had a major surgery and started a new treatment for breast cancer. I first noticed this was happening on a walk to Central Park with my fiance. As I was running my hands through my hair, a handful of hair came out. So I scheduled an appointment with a dermatologist specializing in hair loss. I've also focused on keeping my hair and scalp healthy with regular deep treatments and styling with extra care and limited heat. Plus, I have been using lots of volumizing formulas and texture sprays to make the most of the hair I have. I'm going to great lengths to do everything I can to get back to the fullness I had merely months ago. But the best thing I can do, and the best advice I have, is to be patient. Like most things, recovering from hair loss takes time. As you can see, hair loss has impacted those even within our own Allure family. And we're really grateful to Michelle, Paige, and Valerie for sharing their stories. And speaking of sharing stories, Joining us today is someone who has been very open about her own hair loss experience and is also a woman of science, dermatologist Naz Sadie. I'm Naz Sadie. I am a Philadelphia-based dermatologist. I specialize in cosmetic dermatology and laser surgery. I'm also an associate professor at Thomas Jefferson University. Well, thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. So today we are talking about hair loss, which is... I think certainly one of, I would say the most emotional beauty challenge that we report on. And so we'd love it if you could first just tell us what hair loss is. I mean, we all know when we experience it or think we're experiencing it, but what is it clinically to have hair loss? So it's really important to distinguish what it is clinically because hair loss is normal, but it's normal, especially for women to lose about 50 to 100 hairs a day. And if you're a woman who has long hair, like I do, losing a hundred hairs a day seems like a lot. There's hair in the bathroom, there's hair on your pillow. But when we really start to worry is when people start losing more than 150 hairs a day. Now, some people, we ask them to count their hairs and you'll see them coming into the dermatologist's office with a baggie of their hair. But really what women start to notice is that their ponytail is smaller in size. They're having a lot of shedding on their clothes. 
They get embarrassed at work because their chair is covered in hair or their shirts are covered in hair. And also their parts start to enlarge and get wider. And that's when women start to notice clinical hair loss. So that's quantifiable versus like maybe I'm someone who's shed a lot my whole life and then I notice more. What does that look like for those of us who might not be counting our hair? Like, is that a clump? It's a hefty clump. Okay. Big enough to clog your um, shower. Does that naturally happen with age as well? Like, is some of that to be expected or it's all bad news? That's a really great question. Some of it is to be expected. So especially with menopause, we do see hair loss. And a lot of that has to do with the drop in estrogen levels. And as a result, we see hair loss on the scalp, but then women have increased hair in other areas. So some women start getting thicker hairs in their chin when they've never had hair there before. So it's quite frustrating for females. As I approach my 45th birthday, I look forward to that. I know. So as you age and your hair gets thinner, is it the hair shedding or is it the actual hairs themselves getting finer? One thing that we see with menopause is that the quality of your hair can change too. So some women have been used to having thick hair their whole lives, and then they still might have a lot of hair, but now it's thin. So it seems like it's not as much hair. And what about sudden hair loss? I know one of the really common examples of that is after you have a baby and our former co-host Michelle Lee had talked about that experience a little bit earlier. Is that a different phenomenon? Yeah, that's like a different beast altogether. So that we call telogen effluvium. Telogen effluvium is when you have this shift from all of your growing hairs. So that's the antigen phase. And typically we have about 85% of our hairs in the antigen phase, and they're in that phase for years. And then we only have a small percentage of our hair, about 10 to 15% the telogen phase. And that is more like the shedding phase. And with stress, like extreme stress, like the pandemic stress, very shocking life events like a death or birth, because that has a huge toll on your body. There's this shift from antigen to telogen. And then you have several months later, a lot of shedding. Like, how do you know that it's definitely telogen effluvium and not a longer lasting hair loss? Like I always ask patients, I'm like, did anything happen to you like three or four months ago before you notice? And most of the time you can pin it down to something like, oh, I had to quit my job or my mother got sick or something like pretty large emotionally, or I just had my baby four months ago, I stopped breastfeeding and then all my hair fell out. And a lot of women think like, oh, maybe I stopped breastfeeding and that's what caused it. But The majority of the time, it's that shock that happens giving birth. And then that itself takes months for the hair to grow back. Now I have a seven-year-old and I have a four-year-old and I still have those like fine baby hairs here that never really fully regrew. I was going to ask you about that because my youngest is seven and I still have those little hairs. Sometimes hairstylists will be like, oh, you had a baby recently? I'm like, well, seven years ago. What is it about stress. I mean, you explained about the growth phase and the resting phase of the hair, but what triggers that to change? It's a shift in like the high spikes of the cortisol. Those high cortisol levels do cause a shift from telogen to antigen. What if you're noticing like random bald spots versus all over thinning? Is that like a sign of something else that's happening or could that too be a sign of stress-induced hair loss? 
It could be. That's a really great question. So when you lose little like circular patches of hair, that's often alopecia areata which is an autoimmune disease, which your immune system's attacking the hair follicle. It's genetic, it's autoimmune, it's linked to other autoimmune diseases. But having said that, it also can get triggered from stress. So you could be under a lot of stress and then your alopecia flares. And a lot of times patients don't know if they have a family history of it. And oftentimes it's not really linked to other autoimmune diseases. And then do you go through periods when you have this patchy loss and then can all the hair come back? Absolutely, because it responds so well to steroids. We do injections of steroids, which has risks. You can have little depressions in your scalp where it was injected, but the hair does respond well because you're calming down that inflammation and that immune response locally to allow the hair to grow. For those who might not know, could you explain what traction alopecia is? I know that's kind of in that family as well. So traction alopecia, we see a lot primarily in African-American women who have their hair braided and then also pulled back. So it's two things happening. It's the tight braids that are pulling on the hair and causing trauma, but it's also the pullback effect too, causing more trauma. And then that can damage the hair follicles. And the awful thing about that is that some of that can have scarring. And once the hair follicle is scarred, you can't get it to grow back. Alopecia areata with telogen effluvium, those areas of hair loss, they're not scarred. So there's still hope of regrowing the hair in those follicles. But once the follicle is scarred, we don't have any treatment options that work. Can you walk us through when someone comes into your office and they say, I think I'm losing my hair, what is the first thing that you do? So one thing that I do is I try to get a detailed history of how much hair they're losing and like get a sense of a timeline of when this all started and also try to see, are they losing it in patches? Do they have like a circular loss or is it all throughout? And also getting a family history, like did their father have a history of hair loss siblings? And then while I'm chatting with the patients, I start going through their hair. I actually use a long Q-tip and I separate the hair in parts just so I can get a better sense of, does the hair look thin to me? Does the density of hair look thinner than it should be? And I also do a pull test, which is when you kind of yank on the hairs to see if they come out. People who have telogen effluvium, the hair comes out, you pick up one to two hairs. I mean, I don't have telogen effluvium. I can yank on my hair all I want. And unless I really tug, my hair won't come out. And the other thing you see with telogen effluvium is that you can see the bulb at the bottom too. So once I do that, I also do blood work on patients. I check for thyroid disease. Hypothyroidism can be linked to hair loss. And a lot of times when those patients are started on supplements, they see an improvement in the quality of their hair. It's not as brittle and also more hair growth. Another thing I check for is iron levels. Patients who are anemic are also at risk for hair loss and also just like their hair thinning. So what are, kind of speaking broadly, the treatment options? So the treatment options, if it's like telogen effluvium, it's just reassurance, like trust the process. It's annoying. You have to be patient. Not all of us are patient. I'm personally not patient and it's not going to happen in a couple months, like two or three months, we're talking six to nine months. So it's a lot of reassurance. And then if it's some other form of hair loss, 
Then I start going down the route of discussing supplements and also treatment options. And it all depends on how aggressive the patient wants to be and also, you know, how much hair loss they have. So I typically start with Rogaine for hair loss. Before there was the 2%, which was women's, and then the 5% that was men's. Now 5% is approved for women. But oftentimes, and I don't know why, the women's Rogaine is actually more expensive than the men's Rogaine. Yeah. The pink tax. Gosh. That's terrible. It's the pink tax. So I just tell patients, like, I'm like, you don't even have to buy Rogaine. You can just go to Costco and buy the 5% minoxidil foam. I like foam for women in particularly more than the solution because there's a risk with Rogaine that where it drips, you can have hair growth. So for men, I don't think they would notice if they had like a hair or two on their forehead, but for women, if they had hair growing on their forehead, it's super noticeable and really embarrassing. So I like the foam because it stays in place. Oh. And what is minoxidil? Because that's the active ingredient in those kind of formulas. So minoxidil orally lowers your blood pressure. But when you give it for patients for hair, what you think is happening is that locally it's dilating the blood vessels and you're getting more of like a blood supply, more nutrients for the hair to grow. Got it. So it's creating a good foundation for the hair then. And it takes a while. A question that I always get asked men and and women is that when I stop, is all my hair going to fall out? So no, your hair is not going to fall out, but you're not going to have the same kind of growth that you're having while you're on the minoxidil. So your hair will probably go back to how it was before. Are there prescription strength versions of that? Like, is there ever anything you can kind of compound or mix up in your office versus getting it at the store? So a lot of us use skin medicinals and skin medicinals is a great compounding pharmacy to allow patients access to all of these medications compounded at a really affordable price. So one thing that I use for both men and women is they have a formulation that's 8% minoxidil. It also has topical propecia, which I feel comfortable giving to women. And it has some latisse in it too. Ooh. All of the things mixed together to help with hair growth. For listeners who are not familiar with Latisse, is something that you can use. It's prescription only, but to grow your eyelashes. It started, I believe, as a glaucoma medication, and they realized, oh my God, these glaucoma patients have incredible eyelashes. So it became this lash growth treatment. Why can't we just rub that all over our heads? It would be insanely expensive. Oh, so there's no like safety reason. Like Jeff Bezos could grow a full head of hair again. <laughs> Got it. We'll be right back after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. Welcome back to the science of beauty. So Dr. Sadie, you'd mentioned that sometimes you will mix minoxidil with some topical propecia. Now, can you explain to us what propecia is? So propecia is finasteride. It is actually a medication that they give to men 
originally for prostate hyperplasia. And then they found that if you have a smaller dosing of that, it actually helps with hair because it blocks the androgen receptors. Androgens are just male hormones that in some areas can cause hair loss. Can women take Propecia? They can. Propecia can cause birth defects. Like men can't be on Propecia if they're trying to have a baby. I think personally, there are other options for hair loss that don't have as many risks. On the other extreme end, what about things like hair transplants, PRP? What are the in-office kind of treatment options? PRP is becoming increasingly popular for hair, also just for rejuvenation. And then for those in the audience who don't know what PRP is, it's platelet-rich plasma. So you basically draw your blood and then we take your blood and we put it in a special centrifuge that spins it all down. And basically what we're left with is a serum that is super rich in platelets and growth factors. And then we use it in the scalp and kind of inject it throughout the scalp in areas of hair loss to stimulate new follicles to grow. It doesn't work in areas that have scarring. It works in areas where you've just lost hair. It's very common for men to do and also increasingly popular for women. But the thought behind it is that you're taking these platelets and all these growth factors and you're kind of giving the follicles the nutrients they need to grow. And it's done in a series. Typically people have three treatments done four weeks apart, and then they come back every six months or every nine months for just like one maintenance treatment. And I know for a while, this treatment was considered pretty experimental. Now there are a few studies that track patients for a bit longer, but nothing that's super long-term or definitive. And this definitely sounds expensive. That was a lot of steps. It's very expensive. And that's what I tell patients. I'm like, it's very expensive and I can't give you a percentage. Like if you do these three treatments with me, you're going to have 50% hair growth. But I do tell them that there is evidence that it works. And if people are willing to invest in it or willing to try it out, then I do it. And do you have patients who've gone the hair transplant route? I think a few things that they're often surprised about is most people need more than one hair transplant. Like doing a hair transplant isn't going to fix your problem. It really only fixes a small area at a time. And for people who look really good after a hair transplant, they've had like two hair transplants to get them. Could you explain what's actually happening there? Are you literally taking hair from one place and transplanting it to another? So you basically take like hair from the back of the scalp and you like remove it. And then there's someone who meticulously pulls out and separates the hair follicles one by one, get like a thousand plus hairs. And then what you do is you plan out where you want them to go. You make a nick and then manually place those hairs before with like plugs, it was like six millimeters that someone removed and then plugged in. But now it's like one at a time. So you're awake when this is happening. Oh yeah. You're awake the whole time. And it's not so uncomfortable for us. It's like doing a large excision. And then there's other technologies where you just have to shave your hair with like the lowest setting on whatever you're using to trim your hair. And then you can pluck those out. So you don't have to do the huge harvest. So that's like neograft, if you've ever heard of it. 
I don't think it's quite as effective. And then there's these like robots that do the hair transplant that not that many people have just because it's so tedious. A robot hair transplant. <laughs> and then, I mean, is, is it the dream that one day we'll be able to grow hair in like a Petri dish so you wouldn't need to harvest from your own head? Do you, how many more years on that? <laughs> do you have any visibility on that? Hair is this huge void. And even though people do research in hair, I feel like it's still so gray and there's so much we don't know and there's so much more than we can do. So I know we've talked about how you can't control some of these life events that happen to us and cause stress that then leads to hair loss. But are there things we can do proactively to maybe not lose as much hair or thin as much? I know Nutrafol, which is a supplement has been talked about a little bit in Allure and otherwise. I think having a well-rounded diet is super important for hair. And then I take Nutrafol myself. My mom takes it and I think it works. So I think taking those like for preventative is also great too. I also recommend certain shampoos. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Carefactor. It's a newer shampoo line and solution. And basically it has these peptides that can penetrate through the skin and then stimulate more hair growth. And they have done research and have the data that shows that it's effective. And I've noticed a difference, especially in these little baby hairs. Like I have less of them. I still have them, but I have less of them. Oh, maybe that's what I need. Yeah. And everyone listeners, her hair looks good. Yeah. Very thick and glossy. Is there anything else, any keys to solving hair loss? I feel like if we could solve hair loss, we wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. We'd be out there making our millions. We would not be inside on a gloomy day. No, right? We'd be on our private island (laughs) with our long, thick hair. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sadie. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so we've established that hair loss is super personal and really something that's best treated by a trip to the dermatologist. So Jenny, instead of wrapping up this episode with our personal product picks like we usually do, let's talk for a minute about the costs, like the financial costs of treating hair loss. I know they can be high, although I can't say I know exactly how high, but I also know that hair loss can be so distressing that a lot of people are just willing to throw anything they can at stopping it. That's true. And when we're dealing with hair loss, we can be pretty vulnerable consumers. So to be clear, everything we're talking about here is a proven approach to treating hair loss. All right, so I will read off a hair loss treatment and then you tell me what you think it could cost. Okay, I'm ready. Shoot. Okay, so let's say you want to use a topical treatment. Minoxidil is currently the only FDA-approved topical medication for women that can claim to regrow hair. How much are you thinking? I am thinking maybe $20 a month. So what is that? Like $240 a year? Okay, okay. You're right there in in the range. So you have to apply Minoxidil twice a day, every day. So figuring that this treatment will come in around 141 to 420 per year. And that'll be every year as long as you want to maintain that regrowth because minoxidil only works as long as you're actually using it. Okay, so that, that is going to add up. It will. 
Okay, let's move on to a more, some might say, radical treatment. How about hair transplants? What do you think a hair transplant might cost? Okay, so on this one, I do have some inside information. Years ago, I wrote a story. I interviewed a woman who'd had a hair transplant about the whole experience. I remember at the time, this was probably 10 years ago, and she had gone to a very fancy Manhattan hair transplant surgeon. And it was, okay. it was so, you know, this is probably as high as it gets, but it was $15,000. Yeah, yeah, that's on the higher end, according to our research. We're looking at about 5000 to upwards of 10000 typically. I mean, still nothing to nothing to sneeze at there. That's quite an investment. Okay. And I think she, I remember her saying too, because if you're dealing with female pattern hair loss, that it will, you know, that genetic hair loss that will continue. So when I talked to her, it had been a few years and she was planning to do another surgery because she'd been so happy with the first one, but you know, that it was continuing. So now she was kind of due for another one. Yeah. Talk about adding up. My goodness. Okay. Here is another sort of option. What about wigs and extensions? I know that's a broad topic, but what do you Mm. think the range might be? I mean, wigs I know can get really expensive, right? I would say maybe like $100 for synthetic wig or extensions and then $1,000 for real hair. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right that it is a wide, wide range. Uh, We're looking at anywhere from $50 to over $2,000 and that's per wig. And again, that's if you're using, you know, synthetic hair or human hair. So up to $2,000 if you want a highly customized, high-end wig. Okay, is there anything else? No, I think you got it. Those were kind of the big buckets we had here, but I think that's proof that this is something that can add up very quickly. This is getting pricey. A lot of these options are pricey, but there are also things you can do to treat yourself and hopefully treat your hair that are completely free. Ooh, I like the sound of free. No, don't we all? Zero dollars. So I'm talking about brisk walks, preferably outside, dinners with friends, snuggles with animals, long, deep breaths, all free, and they will all reduce stress. And we now know that hair loss is both something that can cause stress and that can be exacerbated by it. So taking time for yourself is so beneficial all around when you're dealing with hair loss and thinning. Right. And remembering that it happens to so many of us and it's totally okay. Exactly. And you have options. Well, that concludes this episode of The Science of Beauty. Next week, we'll be talking about the topic holding this whole season together, our scalps. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate it and leave us a review. And subscribe. It helps new listeners find us. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Lore on Instagram at A-L-L-U-R-E. Follow me, Jay Bailly, on Instagram. That's J-B as in boy, A-I-L-L-Y. And you can follow Diana at Diana Mazone. That is two N's in Diana and two Z's in Mazone. On the Allure and Condé Nast team, producer is Chloe Sabin. Associate producer is Deprina Gadbolo. Director of Global Podcast is Nico Steele. And executive producer is Megan Shubona. The editorial project leads are Soini Driscoll and Monica Perry. Lead researcher is Westry Green. And the theme music is by Asha Ivanovich. 
and on the Wonder Media Network team. Lead producer is Maddie Foley. Supporting producer is Sundas Hassan Noli. Production manager is Emily Rudder. And production assistant is Carmen Borca Carrillo. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. <laughs>